All right, and as our children are leaving, uh, I just do want to uh, recognize today is obviously July 4th, and uh, we, we are so thankful for our independence, and we're also thankful for those who, uh, who have paid the price to, to give us that freedom. And, and so uh, <clears throat> I hope everyone's safe tonight as they celebrate, and everyone still has all their fingers tomorrow. Boys down here. All right, uh, so this morning... As you know, we're, we're still going through the Beatitudes. Y'all got it. You're good. We got two more. All right. And so uh, this morning, I, I wanted to start back at the beginning of the Beatitudes and just read through uh, the, the verse that we're going to be looking at this morning. So we're going to start in, in chapter 2 of Matthew, or verse 2 of Matthew chapter 5. And Jesus is uh, seated on the mount. He's, he's about to deliver the Sermon on the Mount. And in verse 2, it says, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful... For they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Please bow with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you that you've given us this beautiful message of the gospel and, and your scriptures. And God, I just pray that as we study it this morning, that, uh, that you would just touch our hearts, that you would convict us uh, where we need convicted, that you would comfort us where we need comforted. And God, that we would just draw near to you this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so as, as Byron's mentioned, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones tells us that you can actually look at the Beatitudes as two separate uh, sets of statements that correlate with one another. And, and, and so basically, um, the first half of the Beatitudes can, can correlate with the second half. Therefore, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit uh, would correlate with, uh, excuse me, let me find my place here. Uh, would correlate with uh, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, or blessed are the merciful, excuse me. Um, and so if you go through this system, what, what it does is this morning it lines us up where uh, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be sons of God. And the verse that that would correlate with in the second set of statements is blessed are the meek. Now, we can't put, we don't want to put words in Jesus' mouth, okay? We're not 100% certain that he intended these Beatitudes to be read in this way. However, it is clear that the statement, blessed are the meek and blessed are the peacemakers, do correlate with one another because you cannot be a peacemaker without first being meek. You, you cannot be a peacemaker without being gentle and mild and humble because it requires us to 
set our own preferences to the side. It requires us to set our own well-being at times to the side. It requires us to set anger and fear and pride to the side in order to be a peacemaker. Because a peacemaker is not merely someone who avoids conflict. It's not just someone who isolates themselves and lives in peace apart from everyone else. It's someone who actually enters into conflict to make peace. It's someone who enters into conflict so that they can resolve it peacefully and reconcile the parties involved in this conflict. Here's the problem. We don't do this naturally. Okay, these qualities don't come naturally to most of us as sinful human beings. We are not meek and we are not peacemakers. In fact, we're often abrasive, we're selfish, we're angry, we're fearful, and these emotions and behaviors cause us to be divisive rather than peaceful. And Paul makes this clear in Romans chapter 3. Uh, this is a well-known passage. We, we turn to this passage a lot on Wednesday nights uh, with the youth because Paul is explaining the depth of of the sinfulness of our hearts as, as human beings. So in Romans chapter three, verse 15, Paul says, their feet are swift to shed blood in their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's a passage that describes each and every one of us. We are born with that type of heart. We are born with a heart that is quick to shed blood, that leaves ruin and misery and does not know the way of peace. That's what's in our hearts. And so you read that, and at face value, this beatitude is not good news for most of us, okay? Because most of us, like we said, don't make peace. We actually divide, okay? We react based on anger, fear, greed, self-preservation. We like to gossip. We lash out. We draw lines. We pick sides. We always make sure that we come out ahead. That's who we are naturally. And so at face value, you're like, well, this, this beatitude is not good news to me. It says that the peacemakers shall be sons or daughters of God. And that's not me. So how can we be sons of God if being a peacemaker is a prerequisite? And I hope by now, as we go through this series, that, um, that you know the answer to this question. Because as Byron and I have said time and time again, the Beatitudes are not a system by which we come to God. They're not a system by which we're saved or by which we become uh, part of the family of God. <clears throat> the Beatitudes are descriptive of those who are already in the family of God. So let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, Christians are poor in spirit because the depth of their sinfulness has been revealed to them. They are not Christians based on their spiritual poverty. Okay, so that very, uh, that beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, it's not like God is waiting for you to become poor in spirit before he saves you. We're poor in spirit because we finally recognized the poverty of our spiritual state because God has revealed it to us. It's the same thing with mercy. Blessed are the merciful. Showing mercy to others is not a way to work towards God. It's not a way to work towards salvation. As believers, we show mercy to others because we have been shown mercy 
from God. So these beatitudes, are, they're not a system that we use to get to God. It's simply describing if you are a part of God's family, if you have been shown mercy, you will, uh, if you have been shown mercy, you'll show mercy to others. And it's the same with this beatitude. God's children are peacemakers because in Christ, we've been given a desire for peace and reconciliation. You don't have to be a peacemaker. You don't have to find all of, these, uh, all of these conflicts to resolve, okay? And you go help somebody resolve a conflict and reconcile those people, and you're like, check, there's one. How many, how many conflicts do you have to resolve to earn salvation? We, we don't know. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying if you're a son of God or a daughter of God, you will have a desire for peace. You'll have a desire for unity. You'll have a desire for reconciliation, so that's what Jesus is preaching here. Now, like we said, this doesn't come naturally, okay? When we're converted, when we're made regenerate, when you're saved, wherever you want to call that moment in which God changes your heart, Ezekiel 36 describes it as removing the heart of stone, giving us a heart of flesh. Jesus describes it to Nicodemus as the new birth. Whatever you want to, however you want to describe that moment where uh, we're made regenerate in Christ, you're given this new desire for peace that you didn't have before. However, we know all too well that we still have the sinful person to deal with. We still struggle against sin, and so we're not instantly made these perfect peacemakers. Making peace is still very, very difficult, even as a believer, but it's something that Jesus is working within our heart. And, and so we have to understand and we have to put effort into being a peacemaker. And we have to understand what that looks like, and then we also have to understand what that's going to cost us. Because like we've said, we're naturally, we naturally react based on anger or fear or pride or self-preservation. We like to gossip. We like to lash out at people. We like to pick sides. That's who we are naturally. We have to put effort into being a peacemaker and, and working out this change that God is doing in our heart. I actually read a, a recent, uh, recently re read a, a really good illustration of what being a peacemaker is. <clears throat> During the Cuban Missile Crisis, some of you may remember this, uh, in 1962, Mary just celebrated her 90th birthday. She's going to throw something at me later. <clears throat> Sorry, Mary. Uh, <clears throat> so... Tensions were really high during the Cuban Missile Crisis, okay? I don't know if you, either you lived through it, maybe you've read about it. Things were not great. Uh, we, we were on the verge of a nuclear war with Russia. Uh, they were bringing in nuclear weapons to Cuba so that they would be close enough to hit us. And during all of this chaos, uh, there was a Russian flotilla, which is a group of submarines that were sent in, and, and they were less than 100 miles off the coast of Florida. And each of these submarines uh, were equipped with a nuclear torpedo that was called by the Russians the special weapon. And what was really interesting about these uh, submarines is for the first time in history, these submarines were authorized to fire their nuclear weapons without consent from Moscow. So basically they sent the subs out and they said, if you don't hear from us and things look like they're going south, just shoot it off. 
Um, and, and so this was a very tense situation. Well, on October 27th, 1962, one of these submarines named uh, B-59 was discovered by the U.S. Navy. There was a group of 11 U.S. Navy destroyers. Now, the B-59 was a little bit different than the other subs because every submarine um, had two people that could decide to fire off these nukes, okay? The submarine commander, and then there was a political officer also on board. Those two had to agree to fire the nuke, and if they did, they could shoot it at any time they wanted to. The B-59 was a little bit different, though, because on board the B-59 was the Commodore of, the, of this entire flotilla. And his name, and I'm probably gonna butcher this, uh, <clears throat> his name was Vasily Arkhipov. And I have absolutely no, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly or not. Uh, PBS had a, uh, had a documentary on it that I wanted to listen to to make sure I pronounced it correctly, but you had to pay for it. And so we were just gonna wing it. Um, so. I feel better about the last name, so we're just gonna pronounce that from now on. Arkhipov uh, was the commodore of this flotilla, and he was on board the B-59. And what was different about this sub is while he was technically second in command of that particular sub, he was the commodore of the entire flotilla. So if the political officer and the sub commander wanted to fire the nuke, Arkhipov actually had the authority to veto that. And so that's the situation we have on October 27th, 1962. 11 U.S. destroyers discover the sub, Russian sub B-59. They find it in international waters and break the rules of engagement and start to fire or start to drop signaling depth charges uh, at sub B-59. And now these signaling depth charges were basically just big bombs they dropped in the water to try to destroy the sub. And so uh, B-59 is discovered. They have to dive down deeper to avoid these depth charges. And they're running from these, this group of 11 destroyers. And at this point, there is a very difficult decision to make because they haven't been in contact with Moscow for days. The depth charges have forced them to go so deep into the ocean that radio contact is impossible. And so they don't know if we're at war or not. They don't know if the other subs have fired their nukes. They, they don't know what's happening. They know that they're being attacked by the U.S. Navy. They don't know if it's just a mistake that's been made. Uh, they, they don't know what's happening. And so they have to make a decision. Do we fire this nuke and, and assume that war has already begun or do we not? And the political officer on board and the sub commander instantly said, we've got to fire it. Obviously war has broken out and we just have to fire this thing. However, Arkhipov decided to veto that decision because he knew, he didn't know if war had begun. He didn't know what was going on, but what he did know was the moment they fired that sub, it would mean the end of millions and millions of lives because it would have, it would have inevitably caused a nuclear catastrophe. Russia fires a nuke, the U.S. fires a nuke, and so on and so forth. And so Arkhipov decided that they were going to surface so that they could make radio contact and find out what was going on. Now, I don't know if you know much about uh, how the Navy works. I didn't either. I had to do some research for this. But 
Arkhipov making that sub surface to make radio contact is essentially just giving that sub up to the U.S. Navy. Okay, they're completely exposed. Um, they're surrounded by these destroyers. I mean, coming up to the surface is not a great deal for a sub in this situation, but he decided it was worth the risk if it could potentially save millions and millions of lives. And so they surfaced, they made radio contact, and sure enough, war had not broken out. There was no need to fire that nuke at that time, and Arkhipov essentially possibly saved the world that day from a nuclear fallout. What happened that day was Arkhipov decided to be a peacemaker. I don't know if he was a believer. I don't know if... uh, I don't know anything about his religious background, but his behavior that day was that of a peacemaker. He decided to put fear, anger, self-preservation, all of those things aside. He decided to put his own life on the line because above all else, he desired peace and preservation of life. And he thought it was willing to risk his own life if it meant that peace could be preserved or peace could be made. And and so some people might call him foolish. They were like, that's a really dumb thing to do. You should have never surfaced. You should have just fired. And and the the commander of the sub and the political officer argued very very hostily against his veto decision. So some might consider that foolish, but it's not foolish because he desired peace. Peace. If, if making that subsurface, making radio contact meant resolving this issue and not starting a nuclear war, he decided that was worth it. This type of thing doesn't come naturally to most of us. We wouldn't dare put ourselves in harm's way just to resolve an issue. So to learn this behavior, we have to look to the ultimate peacemaker so that we may be more like him in our own lives. And no, I'm not talking about Archipov, I'm talking about Christ, the ultimate peacemaker who put himself in harm's way to reconcile and to make peace for others. And so as sons of God, we are brought into the family of God. Scripture tells us that Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And when we're adopted into that family, we're called to be like him. We're called to have a family resemblance. And part of that is being a peacemaker. And we see this in John 3, 16. Because to understand how to be a peacemaker like Christ, we have to understand what Jesus' primary peacemaking mission is. And we see that in John 3, 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. So Jesus comes into the world not to condemn because the world's already condemned. Jesus comes into the world to save. There's a conflict between God 
and man, we are enemies of God, and that's exactly what you are apart from Christ. You are rebellious, you are sinful, you are depraved, you are an enemy of God. And I don't know about you, but I don't like the idea of being an enemy of God. But God in his grace sent his only son to make peace. We see that in 1 John, same John, different letter. 1 John chapter 4, in verse 10, he says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I love how he puts that. He says, in this is love, not that we've loved God, okay? The, the love that we have for God is never going to be what it's supposed to be, okay? We're never going to, this side of heaven, love God as much as we should. He said, if you want to know what true love is, you look at God. Because while we were actively rebelling against him, he sent Christ to make peace. That's what propitiation means. It's a sacrificing atonement as to satisfy the wrath of God. Jesus came to reconcile man and God. That is his ultimate peacemaking mission. When he hung on that cross and uttered the words, it is finished, he completed the work of reconciling his people to the Father. Jesus is a peacemaker. He, he put aside all of his emotions, all of the fear, all of the anger, all of the pride, everything that we have our, everything that our hearts are so full of he set aside all of that put himself in harm's way to reconcile man to God and as his brothers and sisters we are called to make peace between God and man the same way Jesus does now I'm not suggesting that we do that in the same sense that Jesus that Jesus did okay we're not qualified we don't have the authority to be the atoning sacrifice for people's sins so we can't make peace between God and man in the same sense that Jesus does. However, we can still be peacemakers by pointing them to him. Look at Ephesians chapter 6. When Paul's going through the armor of the Christian, chapter 6, verse 15. He says, and as, the, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, there's two things that, that Paul's drawing from here. One of them uh, is Isaiah chapter 52. We're going to get to that in a minute. But the other thing is the Roman soldier and, and, and his sturdy sandals, okay? So the footwear of the Roman soldier was extremely important because it would protect their feet, obviously, from the terrain, but it would also make sure that they have good footing whenever they're in battle, Okay, they're getting prepared for battle. Paul is saying in the same sense, Christians, followers of Jesus need to prepare for battle, but instead of preparing for this battle of war, they're, they're preparing themselves to go out and make peace. And, and that's where we get, he's, he's referring to Isaiah chapter 52, verse seven, and this message of peace. So he's saying, hey, I want you to have this idea of a Roman soldier. He's ready to do battle. He's ready to conquer the enemy. And so he's going to do everything that he can to prepare for that. He's putting on all this armor. He's making sure that he's got good shoes on so that he doesn't lose his footing. I want you to prepare in that same sense, but instead of to make war, it's to make peace. 
And Paul in Romans chapter 10 actually directly quotes that Isaiah 52. He references it again. It's obviously an important passage. Romans chapter 10, verse 14. It says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? But they have not all, all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So what Paul's saying there is, he's drawing from Isaiah 52, he says it here in Romans 10, he says it in Ephesians chapter 6. He's calling us to be peacemakers. He's calling us to be peacemakers by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with those that are enemies of God. And here's the point of all this. Each and every one of you is surrounded by people every single day who are in conflict with God. You all have family members, co-workers, friends, neighbors who are actively rebelling against God, who are actively enemies of God, and you were called to make peace. You were called to step into that conflict and share the gospel, point them to the ultimate peacemaker. That's what we're called to do as believers. We have so many people in our lives that we're surrounded with that are fighting this battle against God. They're in conflict with him. And we know as believers, we know exactly how that conflict's going to end. It's going to end with eternal punishment. And so we're called to be peacemakers between God and man. And the way we become peacemakers, the way we make peace is by preaching the gospel. Tell that friend or that coworker that they're enemies of God. Tell that friend or that family member or that neighbor that they're in this conflict with God and there's only one person that can resolve it and that's Jesus Christ. Now we also have to understand that this might cost us some things. We have to be meek in order to be peacemakers. We have to practice gentleness and humility because there's going to be some people you just don't like. Okay, look at Jonah. God said, Jonah, I, I want you to go to Nineveh and tell them to repent. And Jonah's like, nah, I don't like them. He got swallowed by a fish. Don't be Jonah. But we have people in our lives that we don't like. Why am I going to sit down and preach the gospel to them? I don't want them to be a part of this church. Let somebody else do it. We also run the risk of that person getting mad at us. The gospel can be offensive. Telling someone that they're a sinner in need of a savior can be offensive. It's going to, it's, it's going to require some awkward and some uncomfortable conversations, but we're called to be peacemakers. So we have to set aside our fear, selfishness, Anger, whatever it is that's preventing you from being a peacemaker, preventing you from making peace between God and man by preaching the gospel to the people around you. Get rid of those things and be a peacemaker for the people in your life. 
And while making peace between God and man is Jesus' primary mission, it's not his only mission. He also makes peace between man and man. And we should too. I want you to look at 2 Corinthians with me. And you should know from our study through 1 Corinthians uh, that the church in Corinth is pretty messed up. Okay? Um, I mean, if you start feeling down about First Baptist Spearman, just read First and Second Corinthians, and you're going to feel a lot better about what we've got going on here. Uh, church at Corinth was pretty messed up, and there was a lot of division within that church. Okay, they divided over ethnicity, they divided over uh, social and economic status, they divided over all kinds of things. And so in 2 Corinthians, the second letter to the church at Corinth, it's very interesting the things that Paul thinks are important enough to include in his closing statements. And I want you to look at this verse, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. So Paul brings up that idea of peace again. But I want you to look at what comes along with living in peace. He first says, aim for restoration. When you really think about what he's talking about, that's kind of a gut punch to a lot of us. Because how many of us actually aim for restoration? How many of us, when a fellow church member comes up to you and they start to complain about another church member, how many of us say, well, well let me stop you right there. Okay, let's figure out the problem. Let's talk through this. You know, they're a fellow church member. We need to restore this relationship. How many of us do that? Because most of us, myself included, prefer to say, oh, I know. Let me tell you about what they did the other day. Most of us don't aim for restoration. We like to join in the gossip. We like to create little groups and cliques and say we're against this other person. We don't want to resolve issues. We want to feed them. We want to make the conflict bigger. We join in on the gossip and the character assassination. We don't aim for restoration. We don't aim for making peace. There's also some of us, we don't necessarily join in, but we just try to avoid conflict altogether. We see this conflict taking shape. We see people getting frustrated with one another. And we know that we could step in and we could reconcile that situation. We can bring those people together, but we just decide that's none of our business. So we step back. Again, we're not peacekeepers. We are peacemakers. Sometimes that means stepping into a situation and say, hey, I noticed there's some tension here. I noticed that you've got some stuff going on. Can I please help you restore this relationship? We're called to make peace. Anytime conflict arises, our goal should be to resolve it peacefully. And he also says we should comfort one another and agree with one another. Okay, so we, we should have compassion for one another, which makes us comfort one another, but that should also lead us to want to agree with one another. Now, I'm not naive enough to believe that every single person in this church is going to agree on every issue. And I don't think Paul was that naive either. But here's what he's getting at when he says that we should agree with one another. Whenever there's conflict, we should always try to find the common ground that we can unify around. We should always try to find the things that we agree on instead of the things that we disagree on. 
and it's so important to distinguish what's essential and what's not essential. We can disagree on a lot of things and still be the local church, still be a body of believers as long as we agree and, and unite around the essential truths of Christianity. However, this causes you to set your pride aside and have nuanced conversations, sit down and say, let's talk about what you meant when you said this the other day. Let's talk about what you believe about this. Let's talk about um, the conversation that we had so that we can understand one another and find the places that we agree on. It will require meekness. But what enables us to do this, what enables us to have peace despite all of our differences is that we have the ultimate peacemaker that brings us together. And you find that in Galatians chapter 3. Starting in verse 26. It says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So what he's saying there is the reason, the basis of all this unity, the basis of all this peace between us is that we all have a common denominator. We all know that we are completely sinful and depraved, yet we all have the same Savior that saves us from that sinfulness and that depravity. And that's what we unify around. Okay, as a church, we're going to have personalities that clash. Okay? We're going to make mistakes and hurt each other's feelings. We're going to disagree on some secondary issues. We're going to have conflict. I mean, some of y'all might. I don't. Uh, <clears throat> what are you laughing at, Mary? We're going to have conflict. It just happens. But we should always desire peace and reconciliation because we are all a part of the same family of God. We should desire peace. We should desire reconciliation. We don't want to draw lines in the sand. We don't want to pick sides. We don't want to feed into this conflict. We want to resolve it and be one peaceful family. That's what the heart of a believer is. That's what the heart of a son or daughter of God is. We desire peace, not only to make peace between man and God, but to make peace between man and man, especially within our local church. There is one caveat to this, though. I was able to look that word up, see how to pronounce it correctly. I want you to look at Luke chapter 12, because this is going to look like a different Jesus than we've been studying about this morning. In Luke chapter 12, verse 51, Jesus says something that, that's doesn't sound right on the surface. But he's teaching us a very important principle in this verse. Luke 12, verse 51. Jesus says, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. 
Now, you read that, and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, that doesn't sound like the Jesus that you've been preaching about. We've been talking about peace all morning, and now you're showing me a text where Jesus is saying that he didn't come to bring peace but division. We need to put this in context. What Jesus is saying here in the greater context of this passage Yes, he did come to bring peace between God and man. Yes, he does make peace between man and man. However, peace cannot come at the expense of truth. He's saying that there's going to be people that reject the message of peace that I'm giving. Okay, see, we we don't make peace on our terms. Jesus came to make peace on his terms. And if you reject the gospel message that he brings, if you reject his truth, then you are not at peace. And Jesus will not sacrifice his truth to make peace. And this is a very important lesson for us to to understand, a very important uh, warning for us to understand. Because I think so, so many times, especially in today's culture, we're told that we have to give up God's truth in order to be peaceable. We're told that we have to give up God's truth in order to prove that we love people. And that is not the case. The same truth is reiterated in 1 Peter chapter 2. Starting in verse 4, he says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, read this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Jesus came to bring peace But if you reject his message, if you reject the gospel message that tells us that the only way to salvation, the only way to be in the family of God is by trusting in him for that salvation, by trusting in him as the atoning sacrifice for your sins, repenting of those sins and following him. If you reject that message, you are not at peace. And we cannot reject that truth. We cannot... uh, create peace at the expense of that truth we should desire peace but we can never compromise God's word in the name of it God's word will offend people the gospel will offend people the truth will offend people Christians can never be truly unified with an unbeliever because one is is an enemy of God and the other is in the family of God That doesn't mean that we can't love them. That doesn't mean that we can't have them in our lives. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray for them and and, and be a peacemaker for them. But we can't truly be bonded with them. That's why the Bible makes such a big deal about not being unevenly yoked in a marriage. Because an unbeliever and a believer can't be truly unified. Because one is an enemy of God, the other one is a son or daughter of God. I'm sorry to say, but we will never be truly unified with religions such as Jehovah's Witness or Mormonism 
or even Roman Catholicism because they preach a different gospel. There's even some Protestant denominations that we cannot be unified with because they've rejected the essentials of Christianity, the essential truths of Christianity. We can't have peace at the expense of truth. Now that's not saying we simply reject these people, okay? Obviously, what that points us back to is the first thing we talked about in Jesus' primary peacemaking mission. We should be peacemakers for those people. We should point them to Jesus. We should share the gospel with them. We should share the message of peace with them. We should desire peace, but not at the expense of truth. So I know this beatitude hits a lot of people in a lot of different areas, okay? Maybe we haven't been a peacemaker between God and man. Maybe we're simply scared of what people are going to say, and so out of self-preservation, we're just, you know, we don't want to be that Jesus freak, because everybody's cool with you being a Christian in this part of the world until you take it too seriously, until you start talking about Jesus too much outside of Sunday. So we simply avoid that conflict. We're not going to enter into it to try to be a peacemaker. We're not going to share the, the, the message of peace. Maybe you're being divisive in the church, and preventing there from being peace within God's family. Maybe you need to check your pride and find some meekness so that you can be a peacemaker within the church. Or maybe you've desired peace so much that you've actually compromised God's truth in order to get it. Wherever this passage hits you, wherever this message of peace hits you this morning, I want to encourage you to look to the ultimate peacemaker because he's the one we're supposed to be following. Jesus made peace between God and man. He's currently working in each of his people's hearts to create peace between man and man. And if your heart is truly set on him being a peacemaker, you'll, you'll gradually become more and more of a peacemaker. You'll gradually have a heart to make peace between lost souls and God. You'll gradually have more and more of a heart that desires to see peace within the local body. And if you're in here this morning and you've realized that you don't have peace with God, you realize that you're still an enemy, that you're still in sin, that you are still in conflict with God, I urge you to trust in the peace that Jesus offers. Trust him as your savior. Trust him that he makes the enemies of God the family of God. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this message of peace. God, your word tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were actively rebelling, while we were actively hating you, while we were actively enemies, Christ died for us to make peace. Your son died for us and paid the price of our sins so that we could be brought into your family. God, we thank you so much for that message. And if that's not a reality for someone this morning, I just pray that you would grab a hold of their heart. God, that, that you would draw them near to yourself, that you would make peace between God and man this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.